Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts, of George Mason University and Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, find other episodes, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is October 30th, 2009, and my guest is Scott Sumner of Bentley University, who writes the blog, The Money Illusion. Scott, welcome to EconTalk. Uh, thank you, Russ. Thanks for inviting me. Now, you are very critical of monetary policy uh, for the mess we're in, as are others, but your perspective on it is a little bit different. Tell us what you think went wrong and when it went wrong. Okay. First of all, I, what I usually do is divide up the crisis into two parts. The initial crisis, when the subprime mortgages became a big issue in late 2007, I think played out pretty much like most people, most other people think. And uh, the economy slowed down a little bit for a year, up until about August 2008. Unemployment rose a little bit, but there was no damage to the broader economy outside of housing and banking. And then I think where people went wrong is that they underestimated how much of an error monetary policy made after about August 2008. In my view, it became unintentionally highly contractionary. In the only sort of um, definition of the stance of monetary policy that makes any sense. So let me just talk about uh, a couple other ways of looking at monetary policy that most other people use. A lot of people are surprised when I say policy was contractionary because they think, well, wait, didn't the Fed cut interest rates to low levels? Uh, but that's actually a very misleading indicator of monetary policy. I mean, in the early 1930s, the Fed also cut interest rates to low levels. But today, most economists think monetary policy was actually highly contractionary in the Great Depression. Um, some people point to real interest rates. But those actually rose sharply in the last half of 2008. Um, other people point to the monetary base, the, the money actually printed by the Fed, and that did almost double late in the year. But there's really two reasons why that's not a good indicator. Um, one is that um, when interest rates get to very low levels, people tend to hoard cash. So in the Great Depression, the monetary base rose sharply, in the early 1930s, and yet monetarists like Friedman and Schwartz still regarded policy as being highly contractionary. Um, in addition, the Fed started paying interest on bank reserves in October 2008, and that explains much of the increase in excess reserves. So for a variety of reasons, I think the traditional indicators like interest rates and um, money supply just aren't very reliable. Well, when we look at those, is the under... Even though on the surface they look expansionary, the low interest rate and the huge increase in in bank reserves that the Fed injected into the system, uh-huh. are you arguing – what are you arguing that happened on a practical sense? It sound, to my ear, it sounds like you're arguing that velocity, the rate at which people were spending the money, is what dropped out of either anxiety, uncertainty about the future, caution, the low interest rates – is, is that the fundamental mechanism by which these seemingly expansionary moves were, rel- were ineffective? Right. And um, so, uh, yeah, I think velocity did drop. And, you know, the reasons are kind of complex. Um, I think that uh, as the economy slowed, what's sometimes called the Vixalian real or natural interest rate fell to a fairly low level. That would be the interest rate that would provide equilibrium in the economy. And as interest rates fall, people tend to hoard money more. The demand for money rises. Also, when there's financial uncertainty, you know, money is a very safe, liquid asset. So there's going to be more demand for money or a slower velocity, if you want to look at it that way. And there was a huge increase in uncertainty about where assets were headed right. at that point. Right. And the, the thing I think people overlook is that monetary policy is really about adjusting the stance of policy to reflect changes in the economy. So the reason why Friedman and Schwartz argued that monetary policy was contractionary in the early 30s, despite the big increase in the monetary base and despite the cut in interest rates, is the Fed adopted a contractionary stance really relative to what was needed. So their actions didn't prevent, say, the broader money supply from falling or prices from falling or 
nominal GDP from falling sharply. And in my view, and it's, it's not just me, but some other economists, monetary policy should not be focusing so much on uh, interest rates and money supply, but rather setting a policy stance that's expected to produce on-target growth in aggregate demand. And um, so what basically happened is the Fed adopted a very contractionary policy relative to what was needed to keep uh, aggregate demand growing at its normal rate, which is about 5% a year over recent decades. Um, I'm defining that as essentially the total dollar value of spending in the economy, or nominal GDP. And instead of growing at a, a normal rate of about 5%, it actually fell about 2.5% over the next year after mid-2008. So monetary policy was very much too contractionary relative to what was needed to offset the fall in velocity. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. But I, I want to I st- stop here and talk a little bit about terminology because uh-huh. um, I think for most folks, uh, they come – most people come to macroeconomics, whether they realize it or not, as Keynesians. Right. Uh, and I, it's sort of in our cultural blood. I think that's a, a strange phenomenon. But I, the reason I raise it is that when you talk about aggregate demand, I hear a Keynesian idea. I hear this idea that we need to keep spending up. Right. And I'd like you to contrast um, that Keynesian story with the story of Irving Fisher. Now, Irving Fisher – really exploited – this is back at the beginning of the 20th century, early 1900s. Irving Fisher and later Milton Friedman used a, a very, very simple framework for thinking about monetary policy, which is, if I remember correctly, an accounting identity that MV equals PT. That is, the amount of money mm-hmm. times the rate at which it's turning over equals aggregate – I want to be careful here. I'm going to call it aggregate activity. Uh, PT or sometimes PY, where T or Y is transactions, uh, some real measure of economic activity, and P is the price level applied to those goods and services in T or Y. So repeating it again, MV equals PT, MV equals PY, it has to be the case that either though that those two have to be equal. And I the way I'm thinking of what you're saying is if we see PY falling, either because there's deflation, P going down, or Y going down, that is real economic activity, we want to offset that with M going up to make sure that economic activity stays the same or yeah. keeps, continues to grow. What I don't understand is how do you relate that idea to the Keynesian idea that – or is it the same idea? Let, let me it, it, In a way, it is the same idea, but – uh, the two schools approach a lot of the surrounding issues differently. Um, if there is a, a drop in M times V or a, a drop in nominal spending, P times Y, that's essentially a drop in aggregate demand in the Keynesian language. Um, where they differ isn't so much in their views about what's in some sense the proximate cause of a recession. Both the monetarists and Keynesians believe that uh, not enough nominal spending is the proximate cause of a recession. Where they differ is what's causing that to occur. You know, the monetarists put much more weight on failures of monetary policy. The Keynesians put more weight on, you know, consumer pessimism. They're sitting on their wallets or all sorts of shocks like that. And they have doubts about whether monetary policy can actually uh, fix that problem. But here's where the, here's where I, I have trouble keeping them apart, mm-hmm. and and of course there's a third perspective, the Austrian perspective, and maybe we'll get to that. But mm-hmm. but the problem I have is that it seems to me that in both stories there's a similar element of animal spirits, loss of confidence, sitting on the wallet, whatever you want to call it. And in the monitor story, it's people get nervous, they start holding onto their money, they don't spend it, and government has to step in and spend more. In the monetarist story, it seems to me the story is people get nervous, the velocity goes down, they don't spend as much, and government has to step in and boost M. So in one in the monetarist story, they're boosting M. In the Keynesian story, they're boosting Y, the spend the, the, the some measure of real spending. Well, but 
see, that's that's a little bit misleading. I mean, that's the way Good. it's often portrayed, <laughs> yeah. and I've criticized this in my blog. The Help Keynesian me. story is, is actually about trying to get nominal spending up. The question of whether that increase in nominal spending results in more real output or more inflation is, according to the Keynesian model, a function of where we are on what's called the aggregate supply curve. You know, the Keynesians used right, to argue that if we're at capacity. full employment, we'd get inflation. If we're right. in a recession, we'd mostly get real output growth. But but they're both talking about driving nominal spending higher, and, and Keynes himself would admit that if you're at full employment and you do that, you're probably going to get inflation. So... So uh, I mean, there's so that's that's the Keynesian that, story. That's the Keynesian story, but and in a sense, it's also the monetarist story. Except the monetarists are um, more pessimistic about the ability to increase real output. They think inflation is a relatively more likely outcome. Um, and you know, in the 1960s and 70s, the monetarists gained a lot of ground because it seemed like Keynesian policies were just resulting in inflation. But but those are differences. Um, in sort of how they interpret the parameters, but they're they're both essentially Fisher, Friedman, and the Keynesians are, all have demand side models of recessions, which is which is different from say you know real business cycle or classical models. But they they all they all view recessions as being due to a, a lack of nominal spending in the economy. Okay, and let's come now to let's come back to the either. Uh, the current situation or some of the more interesting historical interludes like the Depression that we're talking about. Mm-hmm. Now that we've got that vocabulary, tell me uh, again what you think caused that, that August, post-August 2008 contraction. Well, you know, it, the, the causal thing is kind of complex because it depends on how you look at it from a policy point of view. You can either look at it as velocity going down being the cause or you can look at it as the Fed failing to react to that fallen velocity as they should have with a more aggressive monetary policy. And so you could blame the Fed for the recession. And that's how I choose to do it because for the previous 25 years, the Fed had been offsetting changes in velocity with changes in the money supply in order to keep nominal GDP growing at about 5% a year on average. And, and it never really deviated very far from that trend line. That's the great moderation. That's, That's the great moderation. And suddenly, the great moderation ended in late um, 2008 as the Fed allowed nominal GDP to fall sharply below the trend line. We're about 8% below where we really should be if they'd continued that policy in terms of the total dollar income of the economy. And because of that decline, uh, real output fell as well because it's hard for the economy in the short run to adjust to a nominal shock. We'll come to that in a second. Yeah. Let me let me play Keynesian for a minute. Sure. Uh, an uncomfortable stance, but I'll I'll uh, get into those. Let me let me take off my normal uh, shoes and get into, or take off my normal hat, put on my uh, yeah. Keynesian bowler. Um, I think a Keynesian would respond to your argument, your um, analysis or narrative with the following. Uh, that's all well and good. You're telling me that the Fed was insufficiently aggressive in responding to this contraction even though they doubled the nominal base and even though they pushed interest rates down to a quarter of a percent. They had nothing left. They had nothing left to do. They, we have to turn, according to the Keynesian argument, to, to government spending to try to get the economy going again. They, they were out of bullets. How would you respond to that? Well, most economists don't pay close attention to what the Fed was doing. Um, yes, the Fed doubled the monetary base, but they instituted a policy of paying interest on reserves uh, explicitly for the reason to prevent inflation from getting out of control. In fact, this isn't just my view, but some uh, experts uh, on Federal Reserve policy like James Hamilton and Robert Hall have talked about the policy of paying interest rates so they kind of shot – you're saying they, they shot themselves in the foot or they – They bribed banks to hold on to the money instead of moving it out into the economy. And, you know, in, in one sense, you can say that's understandable because traditional theory says if you double the money supply, you should get hyperinflation. So they thought, well, we can't just have all this money going out into the economy. We better <clears throat> pay banks to hold on to it. But that raises the question of how can you say monetary policy is ineffective if they were instituting a policy – 
to prevent it from being too effective. Yeah, that's true. Pushing up spending too highly. And there's lots of other arguments as Why well. Why do you think fact, they did that? What's that? Why do you think they did that? Just for that inflation argument? Well, their explanation is slightly different, but it, it comes to the same thing. They said they wanted to keep control on interest rates. Recall that when they did this, interest rate targets were still at 2%. Okay. When they flooded the banking system with reserves, this would have normally driven the what's called the Fed funds rate down to zero immediately yep. in, the, in the free market. But they wanted to keep their target rate at 2%, so they had to pay banks to hold on to the reserves, not lend them out to prevent the uh, excess reserves sloshing around from driving interest rates immediately to zero. What so, should they have done? What's that? What do you think they should have done? They instead? should have let interest rates fall to zero immediately. They should have adopted a much more expansionary policy way back in October 2008. It was obvious at that time we were going into a severe downturn, and the Fed was very slow to react to that fact. And I think the basic problem is they were essentially backward-looking in their policy. We had just gone through a, a big inflation blip in mid-2008. Remember the high oil prices? That pushed the headline rate of inflation up to 5%. So the Fed was naturally worried about inflation, as they should have been. But by September and October, the economy was deteriorating sharply, and oil prices were plunging. And all the forward-looking indicators were signaling that inflation and real growth were going to come in way below the Fed's target. So if they had been forward-looking, as I've been advocating for 20 years they should be, uh, they would have ex- had a much more expansionary monetary policy. But they were backward-looking. They were looking at the high inflation of early 2008, so they were afraid to ease. Uh, the analogy I would use is it was like driving, driving a car down a road steering by looking through the rearview mirror to see when you've already gone off the road one way or the other. Instead, they should be looking forward down the road and trying to steer towards where they're targeting the economy. Is it, is it possible that they were too focused on interest rates and they were worried that if they pushed them down to zero, as you said, they were trying to, quote, control interest rates, whatever that means precisely, the short-term rate. Yeah. Is it possible they thought, well, gee, if we push down to zero now, if we don't institute this reserves, these reserves and they pour into the economy, not only is there inflation worry, but we'll have, we'll have lost our last potential piece of ammunition in, in our fight, which is a strange fear, but I think it's possible that is what they're worried about. Yeah, it's, it's- – it's possible, but as you say, it's, it's kind of a strange fear because you're going to say we're not going to do what we need to do in an emergency because we won't have the ammunition to do it sometime later. Well, again, to play the Keynesian, because I want to turn to, a little bit to this phrase quantitative easing, uh-huh. the Keynesian argument is, well, yeah, of course monetary policy is impotent. And of course we have to turn to government spending because we got interest rates. You tried this thing of increasing reserves. You put the you paid interest on them, which which mitigated the impact. But then, when you got rid of, when you finally pushed interest rates down to a quarter of a percent, still wasn't enough. So you had nothing left. And of course, that's not true. So t- talk yeah. about what. Well, let me talk. Let me give one more example because I think a lot of your listeners might be uh, inflation hawks. I'm guessing. So let me use this example to try to drive a stake in the whole interest rate approach. Um, Joan Robinson, a real strong Keynesian argued back in 1938 that the German hyperinflation couldn't have been caused by easy money because interest rates weren't low. Yeah. Now, what do we think (laughs) of that argument today? It's a bad argument. It sounds absurd. But if we're going to argue that Fed policy couldn't have been tight in late 2008 because interest rates were low, we're making the same argument that the um, sort of far left-wing Keynesian Joan Robinson made in 1938. Is that where we want to base our argument? Well, I think that interest part- rates are good indicators. So once we move beyond indicators, you're right. Then we look at other variables like quantitative easing, and even more important, and this is tougher to explain, setting an explicit target. So uh, I don't Let's- want your listeners to think I'm all for discretion and the Fed playing around with variables as they see fit. I want them constrained by rules. So one, Perhaps yeah, even this, constitutional rules, like they, they have some target they're supposed to hit, and they're not allowed to use their discretion, but rather they should do whatever is necessary to keep nominal GDP growing along a certain trajectory or inflation or whatever target is, is mandated. I happen to think it should be nominal GDP, um, 
as did uh, Frederick Hayek, for instance. Let, but let's talk about let's, – let's, let's go get there via quantitative easing. So talk about what tools the Fed has available. I, I really don't like that phrase. It's the one that – but I, I mention it only because it gets used all the time in the papers. Mm-hmm. It, it's really just a fancy term for creating more money even when interest rates are low. And it's really a statement about that, this in, that the focus on interest rates is a red herring. Okay, let me, let me present three tools and three steps. The first would be to stop paying interest on reserves and, if necessary, have an interest penalty on excess reserves so that banks did not hoard a lot of reserves but move them out into the economy. If that's not enough to increase aggregate demand, you can do quantitative easing, which is essentially putting more cash out into the economy by buying government bonds. When you say buying government bonds, bonds that are on the balance sheets of banks and just and, – and Or off- the public. Or the public they can offering, buy right from the public and pay for them with cash. Offering enough uh, of a, of a cash payment to to get the those assets out of off of the balance sheets of banks and individuals and putting yeah. replacing it with cash. Right. The, the whole the fundamental concept of monetary economics is based on the fallacy of composition that what's true for the individual is not true for the group. So if you put a lot of cash out into people's pockets. Typically, they don't want to hold all of their assets in the form of non-interest-bearing cash, so they'll try to get rid of the cash. But, and as individuals, they can do that by spending it, but as a society, we can't. So the attempt of everyone to get rid of all these excess cash balances will drive up aggregate demand. That's the fundamental principle that underlies basically all of monetary economics. And, and let me, let me, let's make it clear, we say aggregate demand and you also use the phrase nominal GDP, which is yeah. the current dollar value of GDP, not in real terms. So if that right. grows, if nominal GDP grows by 5%, that could be a 5% increase in prices and our real standard of living is unchanged. Or it could be a 5% increase in our real standard of living and prices are constant. Right. right? And the reason that's confusing is that there's something else going on along the way. For example, we're in the middle of a recession or we're, we're doing fine or we've, we've overexpanded and therefore we're going to get more inflation relative to, to, uh, to real growth. But I, you, I don't want people to misinterpret, at least I, don't, I think it would be a misinterpretation to think that Fed policy can, by injecting money into the economy, can get the economy to grow. It, it's not going to be real growth necessarily, right? It could just be inflation. Yeah, it could be. The, the trick, I think, to really understanding – macro is to always be aware you have to kind of juggle two balls in the air at the same time. One is the long-run classical model that our real growth is determined by real factors like population growth, technology, productivity, free markets, etc. And the other is that in the short run, a fluctuation in nominal GDP that wouldn't make any difference in the long run will affect real GDP in the short run. So these nominal shocks, like changes in the money supply, can have a short-run impact on real output until wages and prices are fully adjusted. And that shock could come from the, a Fed mistake. Right. Or it or could come – right, yeah. or, or an unexplained change in behavior by consumers and slash investors. So, so what do you do in that situation? Well, in my view, what you do is you say, look, we can't control real growth in the long run. So let's have growth in nominal GDP that would keep inflation low. Uh, I've been using 5% in my blog just because that would result in 2% inflation and 3% real growth, which is about the Fed's target. Based on historical trends. Right, but I mean, I think perhaps it should be lower. Maybe we should go for 3% nominal growth, which would lead to, on average, 3% real growth and 0% inflation in the long run. But the point is, you need some sort of stable long-run policy. Now, what about the business cycle, the short run? Well, I think the way to minimize that is to have nominal GDP grow at a relatively stable rate, Um, whether it be 3% a year or 5% a year. It should grow at that rate year after year. If there's a sharp change in nominal GDP growth, in the long run, the only thing that will be affected is inflation. It won't affect our real output in the long run. But in the short run, it can create a business cycle, either too much output, an overheated economy, or uh, a recession if there's too little nominal spending. So we'd like to keep nominal GDP growing at a a low but steady rate to allow for real growth in the economy but not create a lot of inflation and not create a lot of instability in terms of the business cycle. 
So that's that's sort of how I conceptualize the problem. And so it's hard to say whether money affects real growth or not. In the long run, it doesn't. Or some people prefer to put it this way, nominal growth that's expected and already priced into wages and prices doesn't have any real effect. It's the unexpected shocks that matter. Yeah, I think that's a really important point. I just want to – let's digress on that for a minute because I think it's so uh, difficult for non-economists to understand that. Yeah. And then I want to uh, – after we're done, I want to come to to other rules and, and how your suggestion might be implemented. But that, that idea of unexpected is very important. So the standard uh, way to think about that and I think is intuitive is that if everybody knew that prices were growing at, at say, 5% – let's make it uh, 2% a year. If everybody knew that prices were going to grow next year at 2%, everybody would factor that into how much they'd ex- ask to – get returned to them in interest if they lent out money. Borrowers would understand that with when they lent money, the money they paid back would not be worth as much. They'd be willing to pay an interest rate on top of the normal one uh, by adding on that 2% premium for the fact that prices are going to be lower over higher over time, and the value of the money that's changing hands, say, a year from now, will not buy as, have as big a command over goods and services. So if we all knew that, Inflation would be irrelevant, and I and I think it's important to say deflation would also be irrelevant because for some reason, people have this this bizarre fear of deflation. I think the only reason to be afraid of deflation is it's so unusual in our lifetime that it would be hard to become accustomed to it or anticipate it. But if everybody understood that usually prices fell two or three percent a year, they would factor that into their wage expectations, their borrowing and interest rate expectations. It wouldn't be a big deal. Where you get real effects is when outcomes don't mirror very closely your expectations. So I lend you $1,000. I expect to get 10% in return, say, and I expect $1,100 to come back, and prices are stable. That would be great for me. You might be willing to do it. But if suddenly prices went up dramatically in the interim and neither of us anticipated it, then suddenly you would be paying me back $1,100 that would be worth very little compared to what I anticipated – and those swings in reality versus expectations were, are going to discourage economic activity, cause surprises, and all kinds of real effects uh, that, that that are worrisome. But if they're not uh, – if they are anticipated, if they're relatively close to expectations, those things are relatively uh, – those nominal changes are relatively unimportant. Yeah. Let me talk about two aspects of that for a minute. Um, in a in a normal post-war recession, uh, quite often inflation slows to a level less than expected. So in 1982, we had a bad recession, even though inflation was still 4%, which is fairly high, because it was much lower than the expected 10% that we'd had been having. Um, so that caused a lot of unemployment. And I think to some extent that happened this time around, too. We went from mild inflation to mild deflation uh, after late 2008. And that hurts employment if wages are slow to adjust. But this recession was different. We actually had another problem that we didn't have in the 1982 recession, and that is that we went into it with a very fragile banking system that was uh, devastated by the subprime crisis. And when you have deflation, it's also harder for people to repay loans. So in addition to um, the slow adjustment in wages being a problem with the unexpected deflation, we also had a, a, the debt crisis get much worse because um, people had borrowed money uh, anticipating the normal 2 or 3% inflation that we have, and instead prices started falling in late 2008. Now here I would, I would just add one additional point. In my view, it's better to look at this process from the perspective of nominal GDP than it is from inflation. I think the inflation numbers are very inaccurate, and also, nominal GDP can be thought of as the, the nominal dollar income that the public as a whole has to repay their debts. It's the total so, command over, right, over, over resources right, in some so sense. Basically, by the middle of this year, people's nominal income in aggregate, including corporations and the public, was about 8% below what it would have been if it had followed the usual trend. Normally, nominal income rises about 5% a year. Now, what this meant is that people had about 8% less dollars to repay their loans with than they had anticipated a year earlier when they some of them, perhaps borrowed the money. Some yeah, of them couldn't some do of it. it. <laughs> and what happened then is that 
what was originally like a, maybe a half a trillion or a one trillion dollar subprime crisis spread to many, many other types of debts, commercial, industrial loans, um, better quality mortgages, all sorts of other debts went into default. And instead of being a $1 trillion uh, uh, failure for the banking system or losses in the banking system, the estimates rose as high as $4 trillion. But most of that damage was not due to the original um, you know, bad lending practices, but rather the secondary effect of the falling nominal GDP, uh, making it much harder to repay pay loans. Um, and Sorry. by the way, uh, I think some of your listeners may be Austrian, interested in Austrian economics. This is what the Austrians call a secondary deflation. Uh, the first uh, crisis that I described that started in late 2007 was, um, I can't remember the Austrian term, something about misallocation of capital or resources. Malinvestment, I think. Malinvestment, right. And, too many um, houses, right. too big houses. And too many so big that houses. alone created problems for the economy. But the secondary deflation that hit in late 2008 made the problem much, much worse. And, of course, the same thing occurred in the Great Depression at an even larger scale. So I think it's important to distinguish between those two types of problems because if you're just looking at news from a current, from a common-sense perspective – it kind of seems like it was just one big problem, like banks made all these bad loans and the losses kept getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And, and it seemed like that's all there was to it. But if you look more closely, you can see that the, the monetary policy allowing nominal GDP to fall made many, many more loans uh, turn bad than otherwise would have occurred. Um, you also can see this in terms of the U.S. housing market. The original subprime crisis focused primarily in just a few states, uh, the West Coast, Florida, Arizona. Sand and, states. Yeah, and um, what happened is many parts of the country, there was no decline in housing prices at all, like Texas and much of the center of the country. And so housing prices held up. There weren't that many foreclosures. But then when nominal GDP starts falling, that's going to affect the whole economy. So if people's nominal incomes are going 8% below the trend line, housing prices are going to reflect that severe shock. And sure enough, housing prices started falling everywhere, including states like Texas, that had avoided the first round of the subprime crisis. So it really made the housing crisis much worse than it needed to be. Uh, the first part of the housing crisis was uh, certainly an unavoidable once all these foolish loans had been made, but we depressed the economy much more than we needed to, and we caused the crisis to spread beyond subprime mortgages to other types of mortgages, and then it hit manufacturing, commercial real estate, all sorts of other sectors that weren't involved in the original uh, subprime fiasco. Let me ask a, a clarifying question, which um, you made the observation, and it's an observation I've written about on Cafe Hayek many times. It's, mm -hmm. it's not novel to me um, or you, which is that it's very difficult to measure, quote, prices as a whole or CPI or price index or inflation that mm -hmm. that the government's attempts to 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 create a basket of goods uh, right. and, and measure its sort of average price is a is a very challenging. Uh, well, let me let me give you an example of that that uh, I used on my blog. Um, when I looked at the consumer price index in the middle of this year, uh, the so-called core inflation was um, still up about one and a half percent, I think. And I looked at the components, and I noticed housing was almost 40% of the core inflation. Well, guess what? The government claimed housing prices were up 2% between mid-2008 and mid-2009. And that's because of the peculiar way that yeah, the government it, measure includes how – we should talk about that, how the it, government – It basically um, does something called the implicit rent. It tries to figure out what your house would rent for if it was on the market. So they don't look at the price of your house, which had obviously been falling. And the problem with the rents are that people sign long-term rent contracts. And so you could have a very negative nominal shock to the economy that's causing deflation, but many rent contracts will still be uh, you know, Unchanged. locked into some previous uh, yeah. monthly payment schedule. So those aren't really market prices, and they're not really picking up what's going on with current market prices in the economy, which is what's important for macroeconomic stability. So I mean, my question is, though, how do you, 
why do you think that nominal GDP avoids that problem? Because it's also P times Y. Yeah, it, it, it has that problem to some extent, but it's going to put more weight on things like new housing construction. So the, the construction of new houses plummeted, and the price of the houses that were built fell as well. And that sold. So too. the nominal amount of new houses construction constructed fell very, very sharply. And that's what caused so many construction workers to lose their jobs. But if you're just looking at rents of someone that's on a long-term rent contract, it looks like the housing market was doing fine, so, and so there should have been no reason for all those construction workers to lose their jobs. So are you making a distinction between the GDP price deflate, the, the, the GDP deflator and the, and the CPI? Yeah, and I'm not, I'm not saying the GDP deflator is perfect. Uh, it also is somewhat uh, flawed. Well, it's, by got the same quality it's got quality issues. It's got quality issues. But I think it's better. And I also think that that um, nominal GDP is, to some, in some sense, sort of measuring the size of the nominal shock. So let me explain it this way. If you have some nominal shock that will eventually cause the price level to be 10% lower, in the short run, what will happen is prices will fall less than 10%, but output will also fall. And so if, if you might have nominal GDP fall 10% because prices and real output each fell 5%. But I would still call that a, a negative 10% nominal shock. Now, in the long run, real output will recover, and you'll end up with 10% lower prices. But if you just look at the consumer price index, which includes a lot of very uh, so-called sticky prices or things that don't change very often, rents and, and, and prices in catalogs and so on, it's not going to pick up what's going on in real time with the economy when there's a, a very sudden nominal shock that's depressing values very quickly. In fact, what picks this up best is um, many asset prices. The prices of stocks, commodities, real estate fall much more quickly than the CPI. And uh, although I'm not in favor of you know, targeting asset prices, I do understand why there's many people pointing to asset prices as being important because they're picking up this information about the nominal shock much more quickly than the CPI does. Because their prices in general appear to be more flexible. They, at least. And they, I think they are, yeah. you know, especially commodity prices and stock prices. So this is a nice segue to the question I wanted to ask, which is, so you're suggesting that, that the central bank should be keeping an eye on nominal GDP as the best measure, the best current measure of whether the economy is shrinking or growing and therefore whether monetary policy needs to respond. That's right. And how would that differ from a from the Taylor rule? We've had John Taylor on here before and he also is an is not a fan of discretion. Mm -hmm. Uh he wants the central bank to maintain a um a stance of monetary policy taking into account the growth of the economy and the growth of inflation. Is that correct? Right. And and so um, inflation and how the economy is doing relative to its um, full employment level. Um, so the Taylor rule is similar in terms of the type of variables it looks at. It's a little bit different. But the big difference is John Taylor prefers a backward-looking approach, which I've criticized. In other words, they take historical data – plug it into the formula and figure out where interest rates should be based on past inflation and past real GDP growth uh, data. What I'm suggesting is that the policy should be forward-looking. So the Fed should always set policy such that nominal GDP is expected to grow at the target rate over the next, say, 12 months. And he's also, of course, wants to use the federal funds rate as the primary lever right. to and, and smooth the business cycle. I'm skeptical of, of that. Why? Um, my, I suppose my most uh, advanced proposal is to create a nominal GDP futures market and actually, uh, in a sense, make money redeemable into these futures contracts. So, in essence, the Fed would stabilize the price of a nominal GDP futures contract much like they used to stabilize the price of gold under a gold standard. 
So if, if your listeners are familiar with the way the gold standard worked, the nominal price was fixed, and the central bank would either uh, buy or sell gold at that price. To maintain it. To maintain that price as the public wanted. Now, the problem we found with the gold standard is sometimes when the price of gold was stable, other prices would change. So it didn't always produce an optimal result. But it did avoid, you know, huge amounts of inflation. Uh, what I'm suggesting is, okay, let's create an asset better than gold that really mimics what we'd like the economy to do, and that's nominal GDP futures. And let's have money convertible into them so that the value of these nominal GDP futures is always right on target. They adjust the money supply as needed to keep them on target. Yeah, how, would and, that, how would that literally work? When you say a nominal GDP future, explain what that would be. Well, it's, it's a contract that pays off uh, depending on what nominal GDP turns out to be a year from now. So if speculators thought that, say the target was 5% growth, if speculators thought we'd have 7% nominal GDP growth, they would take what's called a long position. They would buy these contracts from the Fed. And that would be a signal to the Fed to do an equal increase in the money supply. I'm sorry, decrease uh, in the money supply in order to lower the expectations of nominal GDP growth. And so people could buy and sell these contracts from the Fed, and they would do so until the expectation of the public was that GDP was going to grow about right on target. Why would I buy that, though, knowing that the Feds can – to me, it sounds a little bit like – I'm going to bet you uh, – let's have a race. Mm-hmm. It's 100 yards. If, if, um, and I'm going to bet on you. Uh, excuse me. I'm going to bet on – yeah, I'm going to bet that you're going to lose. Excuse me. I'm going to bet that you're going to win, mm-hmm. and you're going to bet that, I, that you're going to lose. And, but you have a lot of control on how fast you run. It's easy for you to run slower. It's hard for you to run faster, but you're under control, in control of how much you run. So why would I bet you – uh, give you an opportunity to say run slowly, which would be really easy for you. So if I'm betting on the future, why would I want to bet with the Fed knowing they can change the money supply and, and win the bet? Uh, okay. Um, first thing I, 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 was a bad, I didn't say that very well, yeah, but I think you get I, I the idea. I think I understand your point. <laughs> I, I actually hadn't thought of that because what I'm assuming here is that the Fed is, is essentially serious in trying to hit its target. So the Fed um, essentially takes a passive position in this. In other words, it's not quite right to say the money supply is under the control of the Fed. It's really under the control of the speculators. So my goal is to set up a system that works sort of automatically, where the Fed is instructed that every time someone buys one of these contracts, expecting higher than normal growth, the Fed automatically reduces the monetary base by that amount through an open market operation. And every time someone goes short or sells one of these contracts, expecting lower than normal growth, the Fed automatically um, does the opposite. And, um, you know, I think you can make that sort of policy work. I mean, any, any target, even a gold standard, I mean, there's always the risk that the government could try to profit from the position yeah. it took. Well, I mean, they the could, you know, in the Great Depression, they almost doubled the price of gold and they made a lot of money on their gold stocks. So uh, you sort of have to assume, whether you're talking about a gold standard or anything, that the uh, central bank will actually adhere to the rule they're supposed to adhere to. And um, well, so that's me, implicit in my proposal. Let me ask a different political economy question, and let me introduce it with a, a comment that uh, Milton Friedman made on on this program uh, in 2006. Mm-hmm. When, I was, uh, when I was in graduate school in the 70s, we were taught that the Fed – was worried about the growth of some monetary aggregate, M1, M2. So in those years, Friedman was often advocating an automatic growth rule in M2. Right. And he, you know, he'd say it should grow at 3% a year, roughly equal to the rate of productivity, maybe 2%, something between 2 and 3 so that we'd have a stable price level. And he was, as we've been talking similarly, he was against discretion. He wanted rules. Mm-hmm. Somewhere in the 80s and 90s, central bankers stopped talking about aggregates like M1 and M2 and started talking about interest rates, that that's what their goal was, was uh, to set interest rates to to stabilize uh, prices and to stabilize inflation. Same goal, different uh, target. Now, the standard argument as to why they switched 
was because we couldn't measure M1 and M2 as accurately. And sort of the way you're suggesting, because it's hard to measure inflation, instead of having an inflation target or a money supply target, we're going to have a, a federal funds rate target because we think that's a easier thing to at least measure and, and react with that. But, well, but, I think I, that yeah, there's there's a couple things. But I, but I haven't got oh, to. Go I, I still haven't got to the question, All right, and now I, now I've forgotten the question. So, <laughs> so that's okay. So let's uh, let's see what I was trying to say. Um, oh, so when I asked Milton about that change, mm-hmm. why that central bankers had stopped talking about aggregate money measures and had moved to interest rate measures, he chuckled and and there was a twinkle in his eye, and he said, um, "Well." That's what they say. They say they're targeting funds, federal funds or rate or interest rates, but they're really just trying to keep a stable M2. And I challenged him on – he sent me a – he said a stable money supply, and I challenged him on that, but he sent me a spreadsheet. It was a very um, inspiring and, and moving thing that Milton, who was in his 90s, sent me an Excel spreadsheet uh, with M2 growth. And he tried to – he made the argument that M2 growth – Forget what they say. What they really do is they try to keep a stable money supply because they understand that's really what drives interest rate. That's really what drives inflation. That's really what drives nominal activity. That's really what keeps the economy stable. And the reason they talk about interest rates is it makes them look more impressive, like they're steering the ship. And, of course, this was at a time when Alan Greenspan was considered a genius, the maestro, because of his cool manipulations of the interest rate. Those days are gone. That that view is, is dead. But – what do you think of that claim by Friedman that really you still want to look at monetary aggregates and the interest rates are red herring and what central bankers are really all about, they want to look important, but fundamentally if they want to be successful, they have to keep a, a slow, steady money supply growth. Okay, a um, couple things. I think money supply is better than interest rates as an indicator of the stance of policy. Uh, if we go back to my hyperinflation example – the money supply correlates much better with inflation than interest rates did in that period, obviously. Um, so that's one thing. But I still think that um, even going beyond M2 to the aggregates themselves, whether it be inflation or nominal GDP, and especially expectations of them, are really the best target. You know, why stop at an intermediate target? It's true that an open market operation affects the monetary base, and then that affects M2 through the multiplier, and then depending on velocity, that affects nominal GDP. But you're not really trying to ultimately control M2. You're trying to ultimately control inflation or nominal GDP. So why not directly target expectations of those variables? And let me point out that in one of Milton Friedman's last books uh, called Money Mischief, he actually sort of endorsed uh, a proposal by Robert Hetzel to have the Fed do exactly that, target inflation expectations. What Hetzel had proposed is that they target the gap between the interest rate on an indexed bond and a conventional bond. And the gap between those two interest rates is roughly what the market thinks inflation will be over the next, over the period of the bond. Right. So uh, Hetzel said, well, why don't we adjust monetary policy until that expected inflation is right where we want it to be. And Milton Friedman, you know, said very good things about that proposal in his one of his last books. So I don't think he was totally unsympathetic to the ideas that I'm putting forward here, but you're right, in most of his career, and, and even when he wrote that book, we didn't even have an index bond market yet in the United States. So um, I can understand why he thought M2 was a good sort of compromise but uh, and why he wanted to avoid discretion. We've just seen in the last year how much of a problem discretion can cause. But uh, I think if we actually do targeting the forecast of these goal variables, we can do it in a non-discretionary way that's better than just targeting M2. Now, but I agree, M2 is, is much more revealing than nominal interest rates. Let, let me ask a different question, uh, and then I want to come back to this political economy issue because I think it's, it's in discretion. I think it's a big it's a big. It's very important. Mm-hmm. But John, going back to the Taylor rule for a minute, John Taylor has been very critical of the Fed in the 2002 to 2004 period for deviating from the Taylor rule, lowering the federal funds rate much uh, below what the Taylor rule would have suggested. That is, uh, the economy uh, 
it, it was a uh, the monetary policy was, policy was too expansionary in that during that period. Now, do you agree with that? And what role? What is your view? The nominal. If you focus on nominal GDP, what do you, what is your perspective on that that period uh, and a Fed policy during that period? Well, first of all, I don't think interest rates are a good indicator of monetary policy. So I don't agree with the view that the low interest rates were a sign of easy money, just as I don't think low interest rates in Japan are easy money or in the U.S. in the 1930s represented easy money. Um, Milton Friedman, to go back to him, him said, low interest rates are usually an indication that money has been tight and that you've had deflation in the economy. So, or very, very low inflation. So that would be the first thing I would say. Uh, I do understand John Taylor's argument that the rates were lower than what his rule would suggest. Uh, I look at nominal GDP, and so I have kind of a mixed view. In the early part of that period, uh, growth was pretty slow, and low interest rates were appropriate. Yeah, we had a recession in 2001. Yeah, probably towards the end of the period he cited, monetary policy was a bit too expansionary because nominal GDP was growing a bit too fast. However... Here's where I strongly disagree with a lot of people sort of doing Monday morning quarterbacking. The sort of policy mistake we made, too much expansion, too much inflation, was actually very small compared to the mistakes we made in the 60s and 70s. And we didn't have huge housing bubbles in those decades. So I don't think the Fed's easy money policy alone can explain the subprime fiasco. I think other mistakes were made either in the private sector or by regulators encouraging a lot of subprime loans, et cetera, that go beyond monetary policy. I don't think that alone can explain the size of the subprime fiasco. Okay, well, let's go, let's go back to this, uh, the political economy issue, which is mm-hmm. uh, what I was trying to get at eventually, which is the following. Uh, let, we could think of a whole range of uh, stances we'd like to see the Fed take. Uh, some would be very discretionary. They have a lot of choice, a lot of freedom to steer the economy, micromanage it. You've suggested one way that we might encourage them to be less discretionary and more um, uh, restrained and more hemmed in, which is uh, encourage them or have them take a stance where they respond to shifts in nominal GDP to try to keep it on some kind of target growth rate. Friedman at, at different times in his career was pushing for a uh, a target, automated, non-discretionary growth in, in some monetary aggregate. Uh, John Taylor pushes for a dis- non-discretionary, le- much less, again, discretionary um, restraint on federal funds rates based on on past measures of inflation and growth. All of these are, are attempts to reduce the discretion, not reduce, but encourage less uh, discretion on the part of the central bank. Right. Given the political reality, is it feasible that any of these are likely to be successful, and might we be better off with a different kind of uh, central bank or a different kind of monetary system, either private money, a gold standard, something that might be easier to enforce? For example, just – we don't have to get into it again, but the, the, the futures contract scheme that you were talking about, and I use the word scheme somewhat uh, – pejoratively because it's complicated uh, it's complicated yeah, right. so i think it would be harder to enforce the the constraints on the fed so given that reality that that central bankers are human beings who want to have a reputation for skill uh also dealing with political reality what are the, what is is this the best way to go um you know it, it's hard to say uh, the problem you have with um sort of getting the government out of money is it's not really clear what the monetary system would look like. Uh, one possibility might be a gold standard combined with free banking, say. But, um, you know, even some free banking advocates are skeptical about that because the gold standard doesn't necessarily prevent a lot of macroeconomic stability. You know, you, you could have periods instability, of... Instability. Instability, yeah. I mean. Uh, you could have periods of deflation and depression under a gold standard if if there's an increase in demand for gold, for instance. And uh, the other thing is, um, so it, it may not be linked to gold, but then the question is, well, what would be the medium of account? What would you link the dollar to? 
what would determine its what would pin down its value and, and we don't really know what that system would look like um, so uh, even with all of its flaws you can argue that the discretionary system that we've had in the last 25 years hasn't really done any worse than other past systems, earlier systems in American history, uh, in terms of the business cycle and so on. Well, so I that's one point. Um, well, I the, to... the other thing is I just think the reality of the modern world is uh, that governments like to have a lot of control. Yep. And I think the best way to to move forward is to move forward incrementally and and learn from the mistakes we've made in the past. For instance, one incremental improvement that I think the Fed might be willing to do is to set an explicit target. In other countries, central banks have already done that. We haven't done that here yet. And a second move would be to targeting what's called the level instead of the growth rate. The level would mean they would spell out where they want either price level to be or nominal GDP to be next year, the year after, the year after that, and so on. And they would commit to try to always return to that trajectory if they deviated from it. That would, in my opinion, have a lot of stabilizing properties for the economy. So, um, look, I'm, I guess I'm a little more optimistic in the sense that if we look back at the last hundred years of, of Fed history, we can see some really um, gross errors that were made, and we can also see the Fed learning from the mistakes. They never quite repeated the mistake of the Great Depression, of letting you know, M2 fall 30%. Then, after the 60s and 70s, um, it became apparent that the Fed had did not have a good understanding about how to control inflation, and they rethought their whole strategy, and they came up with a system that I think does allow them to keep inflation at a fairly low level. And that's why I'm, uh, I dissent from the common view today that, that we're going to have high inflation just around the corner. I think they've been able to solve that problem, too. And now this crisis has revealed a third problem, which I think is they don't know how to handle very sudden changes in expectations and velocity and so on, that they're too backward-looking in their policy. And I think they can perhaps learn from that as well. Um, well, let, let me let me. Uh, so I'm I'm a little more optimistic. I mean, before this crisis, we had arguably the the 25 most stable years in American macro history in terms of the business cycle. Yeah, followed by a really bad, bad <laughs> really bad recession, yeah. which both whether you're John Taylor or you. Uh, put at the to a large extent at the at the feet of the Fed. You have a slightly different. Uh, not slightly, have a different explanation for what the nature of the Fed's mistake was. Um, and, and I do worry that we have too much hubris, right? Six, a year ago, we were, or two years ago, we were very confident that we mastered this business cycle thing. I will say that, which I think is uh, seems to be true, and I'm going to close on this, let you close on it. Um, as you say, if you look back at, at the last um, century, the Fed does seem to have gotten greatly better at moderating inflation, which is, after all, to a large extent, its job, yeah. right? It, it was – unfortunately, it also is now considered to be the, the killer of business cycles, which I think is a very difficult job for the Fed to do. We could give them a, a B-plus because, well, after all, infl- we haven't had hyperinflation. We haven't had deflation of any serious amount, and the price level has been fairly stable over the last oh, – 25-ish years. Um, however, and here's the big however, uh, when Alan Meltzer was on this program, he was very confident that when the economy started to recover, those reserves that the banks have on their books that they have not that they have been hoarding, that they haven't been spending, are going to go flying out the door. Inflation is going to reignite. Uh, there's going to be tremendous political pressure. on The Fed will want to raise interest rates. Uh, there'll be tremendous political pressure on them not to, and we will have inflation. So uh, let's close to hear your thoughts on why that isn't necessarily true uh, and maybe give us a little more encouragement about what the Fed is at least capable of down the road. Um, okay. Um, one of my lines is that good economists don't make forecasts. They infer market forecasts. Uh, right now, the futures markets for the CPI and also the bond market is forecasting very low inflation going forward. And I think market forecasts are the best we have. 
as to why they, they are making this forecast, I think it's because the Fed has an operating procedure that allows them to prevent that breakout of inflation. Um, although they don't watch expectations as much as I'd like them to, they do watch inflation quite a bit. There's a lot of inflation hawks at the Fed. And I would expect them to start raising interest rates as necessary to prevent a breakout in high inflation. Every cycle we've had since 1982, we've gone to lower and lower trend rates of inflation after each recession. And I think this one is the same. We're, we're now coming out of this recession at an even lower trend rate of inflation than we went into it with. But we haven't doubled the monetary base at any right. of those times. But that, they'll either keep paying interest on that so banks hoard the money, or they'll just pull those reserves out of the banking system when they're no longer needed. So I'm, I'm not too worried about that. But, I mean, I would like to kind of make one final point on the whole sort of free market libertarian issue because I'm very much a free market economist, so I'm not comfortable with the Fed having all this power. Um, but I look at the world in a realistic way, and it, it's it's inevitable that the, the Fed is not going to, that the country is not just going to let nominal GDP bounce around according to the gold market or something like that in the future. So the problem that you have is when the Fed makes mistakes and creates deflation, it looks like a failure of the free market, both in the Great Depression and this time around as well. The conventional view is the free market's not working. Look at all these awful things that are happening. People don't look for the deeper root causes. So I want to keep nominal GDP growing at a steady rate, partly for very libertarian reasons. I think if if that occurs, the free market will look much better than the average person, and they won't be looking for bad policies like bailing out banks and General Motors and all these other uh, policies that are really just treating the symptoms of bad monetary policy. Uh, before we close, though, I want to ask you, given those past mistakes, uh, which have made markets look bad, mm -hmm. uh, what could the Fed be doing now? What we've seen in response to the crisis is both a mix of monetary and fiscal policy, right? The Fed's made a massive increase in, in reserves. They've lowered interest rates, federal their, the federal funds rate to close to zero. Uh, that has had, I assume you would argue, some impact, not as, not as much as it should have had. They should have been more aggressive, you've said. At the same time, the federal government has spent an enormous amount of money, not so enormous, but they've tried to spend an enormous amount of money. They've pledged to spend an enormous amount of money. They've had trouble actually getting it out the door, but they've spent some money. Uh, what should monetary policy be going forward, uh, and what should fiscal policy be going forward that would get us out of the mess now? Or should we just take our lumps? Um, a couple points. It's, it's tempting to look at the low interest rates like the Fed is doing a lot, but the countries that actually are successful, like Australia, which hasn't had a recession since 1991, actually have much higher interest rates in the United States because higher rates are a sign of prosperity. Low interest rates are a sign of failure. So that's one point. What they need to do is a couple things. They need to set an explicit target for, say, nominal GDP, much higher than it is currently expected to be, and promise to do whatever is necessary to get expected growth up to that target. Or it could be an inflation target. Second, they and that would to, and that would to hit that target. Presumably, they would have to increase reserves and lower the the rates they're paying on those reserves to encourage that money to get out into it, the economy. They might have to do that, but it's also very possible that just setting a target would so increase expectations that the same amount of money out there right now would have effectively a much more expansionary impact. They'd be changing velocity, essentially. Right. I mean, the irony of this is not just the low interest rates, but also the doubling of the monetary base are both really symptoms of deflation. Banks are hoarding reserves because there's nothing better to do, especially when they're being paid to. And interest rates are low because there's so little lending in the weak economy. So it, it seems like I'm saying, well, we have to make interest rates much lower and we have to even further increase the monetary base. But that's too simple a reading of what I'm saying. We need a broader strategy that commits to a higher rate of nominal growth going forward. And if we have that broader strategy, we have to just set interest rates and the base at whatever level is appropriate to make expectations uh, move to their appropriate level. And that might be higher interest rates or lower interest rates. 
obviously they can't go much lower than zero, but um, we could charge a negative penalty, I guess, on excess reserves if we wanted. But, you know, whether the monetary base would be higher or lower, it's hard for me to say. The, the, The paradox is, if I had a crystal ball and I could look two years out into the future, I would much rather interest rates be 4% than zero. Because if I could see they were 4%, I would think, oh, we must be recovering. If I saw they were zero, I would think, oh, we're in the Japanese scenario. Yeah, the, the so it, when I say I want an easier money policy, most people read that as, oh, he wants zero interest rates for year after year after year. No, I, I want an expansionary enough policy that, so that the economy recovers quickly and interest rates can rise quickly. Well, it seems to me, and I'm going to be, uh, I don't know what flavor of comment this is, but it seems to me that both the fiscal stimulus, which hasn't worked very well in my opinion, and the monetary policy, whether it's been too expansionary, too contractionary, it hasn't worked very well. Yeah. Um, They both suffer from the challenge that people are anxious about the future. If we can make them feel better about the future, uh, either of those would be more effective – Unfortunately, governments and economists are not very good at changing people's expectations. So I appreciate your suggestion that we should – if we could change people's expectations, yes, the economy might get going, that monetary policy would be more effective. But it seems to me that we don't really have a good model of, of how we give people confidence in that area. Well, uh, a couple points. I agree with you about fiscal policy. I don't think it works very well. Um, monetary policy – can be very powerful. In fact, it can easily be too powerful, as we saw in Zimbabwe with the hyperinflation. I don't have any doubts that monetary policy can increase nominal GDP if it's pursued aggressively. But here's something to think about. The Fed hasn't tried to shift people's expectations. The Fed hasn't said, oh, uh, right now inflation is going to come in below target, so we're going to move much more aggressively until we get expectations up to, say, 2% inflation or wherever the Fed wants them to be. Instead, the Fed has basically predicted failure and not done anything to remedy that prediction. But you don't think that the doubling of the ba- of the base was their way of saying to the world, we're going to be aggressive in trying to increase the, the rate of growth uh, of prices? I, I do not, and I'll, I'll tell you why very... Uh, very specifically, Lars Svensson argued that the Fed should always target its forecast. So if it wants 2% inflation, it should set the money supply at a level where it expects 2% inflation. But starting last October 2008, the Fed started forecasting inflation and real growth at levels far below what everybody understood the Fed wanted. So yeah, the Fed started forecasting failure. Now, there's a couple ways of looking at that. You could say, well, there's nothing more they could do. But we've already discussed the fact that interest rates were still 2% at that time, and they were paying interest on banks to keep rates from falling below 2%. So they could have done much more. And even when rates hit zero, they can do almost an infinite amount of quantitative easing or the printing of money. So if, if we were coming in at below what the Fed wanted, and the Fed itself saw this and understood this and wasn't taking any action to move market expectations up to its target, then I, I think we, we have to conclude that they did not do what I'm suggesting they do, which do is try to shape expectations in a way that success is expected. My guest today has been Scott Sumner of Bentley University and the blog, The Money Illusion. Scott, thanks for being part of Econ Talk. Thank you for inviting me. I enjoyed it. This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.